copy of God's Word today and open it up to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, if you don't own a Bible, under a seat in front of you is a black hardbound copy of the Bible. Please grab that. Open it up to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service today. And I would be remiss if I didn't again come before you this morning before we get started and yes, oh me of little faith. <laughs> About 4.15, 4.30 or so last Sunday afternoon, my, my cell phone lit up, text messages all over the place, oh ye of little faith, as the Cardinals went into Seattle and beat the Seahawks. <laughs> you know, I do find it interesting though that the... I do find it interesting that the, there was an exorbitantly larger number of text messages and emails that I received this week than there were hands that were raised when I asked how many had the faith. So anyway, <laughs> and I've also been requested to repeat that lack of faith today for the game against the 49ers. And anyway, God bless you. Second Peter chapter 1. Last week... We began our study in 2 Peter, and we, we talked about all that is ours in this amazing faith that we have, how God has multiplied grace and peace and blessings to us, how he has given us his precious and magnificent promises, how he has granted to us in our faith everything that we need for life and godliness. And as we continue our study today, we're going to see some amazing things. I pray that we are all challenged and encouraged today. And as we begin our study, I want to go back and I want to read the entire section together. So please follow along. I'll read. You follow along as we read the first 11 verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Verse 5. For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, 
the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Wow, wow, wow. (laughs) What an amazing section of God's holy word we have here. I mean, I... I place myself, try to put myself in that situation. Peter writing this. We talked about this last time. This this letter was written at the very end of Peter's life, probably written in prison in Rome just before he dies. And what an amazing treasure he's given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I, I feel this way almost every week as I study God's word. I think, man, this is my favorite section. No, this is my, you know, as we keep going through. But 2 Peter chapter 1 really is, I believe, one of my very favorite sections. It is so full. It is so full. We talked last week about the precious and magnificent promises in God's word that are ours because of the relationship we have. with. We don't earn them. He gives them to us, these promises. And we could probably go around and, and all share our favorite promises. Every born-again believer, John 3, 16, has got to head up that list, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. What a promise. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What an amazing promise that is as we face trials and difficulties in our lives, right? 1 John 1, 9. He who confesses his sin. If we sin, we confess that sin. And God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another amazing promise. And as we talked last week, God's word is full of his promises. Precious and magnificent promises. But how many of you in your top five have 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 as one of your favorite promises? Look at what it says. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Wow, what a promise. What a promise. Anybody want to stop stumbling? Anybody want to to get to the point where when I do stumble, I can say, I know what to do to fix that? Peter tells us. Peter tells us in this incredible section. So last week, we talked about all of the gifts that are ours. Today, he tells us, because we have this, here's what we do. Here is what we are to do. And in verse 5, he says, Now for this very reason also, because we have all of these things, because we have grace and peace multiplied, because we have these promises, because we have everything we need for life and godliness, because of this, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and now he's going to go on and list seven qualities that we are to supply to our faith. But before we start getting into those qualities, we need to understand how it is that we supply them, how it is that we are to do this. And he tells us, he says, applying all diligence. Diligence, great word. Important word in understanding how we do this. It carries with it the meaning of an eagerness, a desire that our will is set towards this. But it carries with it so much more meaning than that. It has a sense of urgency to it. Not only are we to apply maximum effort, but we are to do it with a sense of urgency. Anybody make a New Year's resolution or multiple? Anybody waiting till Wednesday to start them? Yeah? Well, what, P- what Peter is telling us here is we don't wait till Wednesday. We don't put this off till later. Right here, right now, maximum effort required. 
Now, he says, applying all diligence, not for our salvation. Make it that very clear. We're going to state that, repeat that. Because many people believe you need to work for your salvation. Understand again, he is speaking to born-again believers. Last week we talked about it. He's writing this letter to those who have received a faith of the same kind as his. Saving faith. He's talking to those who have already trusted Jesus for their salvation. So this is not in order to receive salvation, but for the very fact that we have it. He says, for this very reason. Because we have this. This is what we are to do. Peter says... I'm sorry, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not, all, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, not work for it, work it out. God has placed this in us, in our faith, the desire to work it out and the means by which we work it out. And Peter is saying, because he's given us this, let's get to work. God's resources perfectly married with our responsibility. Spiritual growth doesn't happen without a deliberate, diligent effort on our part. God does not make us holy outside of or against our will or without our cooperation. He, he requires that of us. Charles Spurgeon, I love this quote, said, speaking of this fact, God sends every bird his food, but he doesn't throw it into the nest. God provides everything that a bird needs to live. Bird doesn't go out and manufacture anything. But he has to get off the branch and build a nest first, and then he has to go and gather the food and bring it back to the nest. God provides everything, but there's work involved. Now, not that we are to follow a new set of rules and regulations. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, Peter and Paul over and over in their letters enforce this fact. We are to relinquish all control. Working hard does not mean we grab control. We surrender it all. We relinquish it all. Your will be done, Lord. We rest. Now, I know that that's an oxymoron. We're to diligently work and rest at the same time. But yes, we rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We rely on the Holy Spirit, his power within us, the divine nature that has been given to us within us. We rely on that power. And in that, we reflect God's glory. We radiate Christ's righteousness. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He prepared it beforehand. We don't manufacture it. We don't do it on our own. We don't dig down deep and grab a hold of our own resources. That produces legalism. That produces pride and arrogance in ourselves, and it causes a whole lot of frustration. We take his power, his promises, and we diligently work. We diligently move forward. I've, I've used this phrase before. I heard many years ago, but it's blessed me, and I continually share this because it's important because we come across a list like this, and as we go through it one by one, I know there's going to be some discomfort. There's going to be some, some, some challenging things that, are, that we're going to go through today. But God's commands are his enablements. God will never tell us to do something we can't do in his power and in his strength. 
We step forward in faith, and when we do that, he enables us to do what he calls us to do. God provides the foundation, our faith, as we talked last week. He provides the building materials that we're going to talk about today, but it requires our participation. There's a, there's a saying that goes around, you've probably heard it, maybe even used it. Let go and let God, right? That's nowhere in the scripture. There is not a verse that says, let go and let God. As a matter of fact, if there's anything, it says, trust God, is what Peter is telling us. Trust God and get to work. There's no such thing as floating along in your Christian life and staying in one place. If you are not progressing in your Christian walk, you are regressing in your Christian walk. If you're not moving forward in your faith and in your knowledge and in your spiritual growth, you are regressing and moving backward. If you've ever been surfing or, or been out on a, a boat in the, in the ocean, you know that you don't stay in one place. Tides carry you. Wind pushes you. And Peter is telling us we can't tread water. We can't stay in one place. The winds of doctrine come along and can blow those away that are not actively pursuing righteousness and holiness. God has been at work diligently in us, but we are to work diligently alongside him in the process. One more point on this before we move along. One more verse. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Probably heard that before, but have you ever stopped and said, all right, now, who's building the house? Who's watching the city? Is it God? Or is it us? Yes. Yes. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So the Lord is building to build the house, but those who are building it, that's us. Unless the watchman watch, unless the Lord watches, the watchman stays awake. The Lord watches, we stay awake and watch as well. And it's not a 50-50 deal. It's a 100-100 deal. It's a 100-100 deal on our part. We are 100% reliant on him, but we are 100% responsible for our participation. And he says, applying all diligence in your faith, in your faith. It's got to start there. Again, the foundation of our faith. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We abide in him, we stay firmly fastened to the faith that we have in him and we bear fruit. Get away from that, we can do nothing. Faith is the root. The rest of this is the fruit. In your faith, supply Interesting word, epikorageo is the Greek word. And it adds to it to, to supply. So in your faith, supply, but that word epi, as we talked about last week, magnifies the supplication, magnifies what we're to do, lavishly supply, pouring out this effort. God has lavishly and generously blessed us. We talked about the multiplication last week. He's given us everything that we need, these precious promises, all of this that is ours. We are to take that and lavishly pour it in to the work that we do. Now, we need to be careful 
If you've ever been a part of, of studying an ancient language, if you've ever taken Greek classes or, or Hebrew or those types of things, we have to be very careful, especially when it comes to Greek, because a lot of people, when they translate or are, are teaching this, they'll say, well, you know what? We get our English word, this, from that word, and therefore that's what it means. And that's dangerous because English came along much later. And we, we, can, we can draw things to that and we can look to that and it's not a useless thing to do, but we can't base the meaning of the word on that. I say all of that to say I'm not standing on this next point doctrinally, but I think it paints an awesome picture. Epikorigeo. We get our word choreography from that. And Ephesians tells us that we have an amazing choreographer who from eternity past has laid out the music has written the words, has planned every stage of this amazing production that is going on around us. God is in control, the sovereign creator of all things. And as I read earlier, he's given us a role to play. He's prepared beforehand these roles that we are to play. So we are to diligently seek to perform the parts that he has uniquely prepared us to do. Each one of us has been given a part. Each one of us has been given an act, a play in this. And we are to diligently do that. I take, again, this whole idea of the choreography, to dance with all of our might like David did before the, before the ark as it brought into Jerusalem. Danced with everything he had to praise God in what he was doing. Well, in our faith, we are to supply, and he goes on now and lists seven qualities, the first of which is moral excellence. Moral excellence. That is the Greek word arate, and it means preeminence, excellence, or virtue, as they might be translated in some other versions of the Bible that you have. It literally meant, back at that time, the fulfillment of a thing. Something was considered virtuous when it completely fulfilled what it was supposed to fulfill. And used secularly, it would be used like for uh, uh, farmland. Farmland would be arate if it produced abundant crops. That's the, so you get the idea. That's what the word means. And we can say the same thing about anything. A chair fulfills its purpose when it's sat in. A shovel fulfills its purpose when we use it to dig. But we know we know that if we use things outside of what their designed purposes are, we can be frustrated. We can experience pain. Anybody try to dig with a chair or, or sit on a shovel? It's, it's not comfortable. It, there's problems associated with that. And the same is true when we get outside of our purpose, what we were created for. We demonstrate moral excellence when we live the way that we have the potential to live. We demonstrate moral excellence when we live out the purpose that we were created for. And that, by the way, guys, is to give glory to God. We do that when we fulfill. We do what he's called us to do and the power that he's done. He gets all the glory then. Doing what God has uniquely gifted us to do causes others to see. Jesus said when we do that, others will take notice and what? Give glory to the Father in heaven. The key to godly living is godly thinking. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and that's the Greek word, arate there, 
And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's where our mind needs to be focused, on this list of things. This word was also used back in verse 3 of our text last week. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and arate, excellence. So when I look at this, I see that we ultimately demonstrate moral excellence when we reflect him, when we radiate his glory, his excellence. So I ask the question, is your life reflecting his glory and excellence or is it repressing it? Is it, is it radiating it or is it, is it covering it? Well, one more thing on this word arate before we moved, move on. It implies courage. It carries with it the idea that there's courage involved in this. Because, guys, when we do what's right, it's going to cause us to stand alone at times, especially in the workplace, especially when we're out in the world engaging with them. We're going to have to stand alone at times. And when we dance with all of our might doing what God has called us to do, like David, we're going to face that. David's own wife said, boy, you sure made a fool of yourself today dancing like that. And you know David's response? Man, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'll be a fool for the Lord every day. Well, he says, in our moral excellence, knowledge is to be added. Gnosis. We talked last week, epignosis, that experiential knowledge. Here Peter uses the simple word gnosis. And it doesn't mean intellectual pursuits. It doesn't mean because we took that off, it means something totally different. No, it simply means spiritual knowledge, guided by the Holy Spirit, focused on Almighty God and his living and powerful word. Charles Spurgeon also said this, he who does not long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. When we understand who Jesus is and what his desire is for our lives, if we make that an active part of our lives, knowing him, we realize in that we can never know him enough. It stirs up that hunger within us to know more of him and what he would desire of us, who he is and what he wants from me. That's why as a part of all of our regular Bible reading plans, we need to include the Gospels in that. We can, we can get away from it and say, yeah, you know what, I, I know all of those stories. Well, read them again. Read them again and ask the Holy Spirit to just move your heart as you do, to learn, again, more of him. We've all heard the, the, the Christmas story before, and I don't know if anybody else was, but I was blessed Tuesday night to read it again and to hear it again touched me again in a different way to know him. Verse 6 says, in your knowledge, self-control. Self-control, restraining our fleshly passions and our appetites. As we grow in the knowledge of the Lord, it's vitally important that we control ourselves, control our flesh. By definition, the word self-control means that our self doesn't want to be controlled. Anybody relate to that? Your flesh doesn't want to be controlled. Your flesh wants to run and do what it wants to do. And 
we have to control those natural fleshly appetites. Paul underscores the, the necessity of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 26, he says, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified. What he's saying in there is, if we have all of this knowledge we understand who Jesus is and what he expects of us, and I'm sharing that knowledge with others, yet my life is going a totally different direction. It totally ruins my testimony. They're going to say, who are you to tell me that? That's why self-control is so important in our lives. This dance that we're dancing. Again, if our lives are, this dance goes in a different direction, people are saying, what is that? Why would I want to follow that? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, he echoes this same thing that, that we see here in, in 1 Corinthians and what Peter is telling us, self-control. But I say, walk in the Spirit, he says in verse 16, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Again, self-control. He's telling us right here, our flesh doesn't want to be controlled. Our flesh doesn't want to submit to the Spirit. We must do it. We must force that. That takes effort, maximum effort, diligence. And he goes on in chapter 5 to talk about the deeds of the flesh. He says they're evident. It's not like, like oh, really? That's on the list? No, they're evident. We know it. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, he says. And he goes on to say, those who practice these things, if these are the, the evidence and fruit in your life, those will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But praise God, he says, but the spirit that is within us as born-again believers that is fighting these things, he says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and last on the list, self-control. Self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. A fruit of the spirit that is within us. Again, before we came to Jesus, we didn't, we didn't control any of it, and we didn't want to. But now we have the Holy Spirit in us, and in that is the fruit of self-control. And with that fruit, with that power, Peter is telling us, supply this diligently in your life. Self-control. Never allow anything, anything, or anyone to be master over you except the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing should have power over you. Nothing should control what you think or do or say other than Jesus. So, as we go through the list, we need to pause. We need to ask ourselves, is there anything in my life? Is there anything that I have allowed to have control over me? It might not even be listed in Scripture as a sin, because many people say that, well, it's not in the Bible. But does it have control over me? We need to exercise self-control diligently in this effort. Well, I love how the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to follow self-control with perseverance. 
because we can so easily fall away quickly. If we stumble in the area of self-control, the enemy is quick to say, yeah, 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 see, see, look, look, and even question our salvation, question who we are in Christ, and we can follow that along and end up way far away, but he follows self-control with perseverance. That means stay in the fight, do not give up. Recognize sin for what it is, confess it for what it is, and receive the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and you keep moving forward. It means to remain under the discipline, even though we, we might stumble, we might have an, have an area that we're, we're really wrestling with, and we might lose a battle one day. We don't lose the war. We stay in the fight. The same word the author of Hebrews used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. The same word there the race that is set before us. Perseverance, endurance, run this race with it. Don't give up, don't stop. In your perseverance, next on the list is godliness. Godliness, literally the word means to worship well. And when we come across these ideas of worship, it doesn't mean what we've done earlier today, singing songs and, and playing instruments. That includes it. That's part of worship. But what, the, what worship is, is a way of life. Every aspect of our lives should be an act of worship towards God. Our prayers, our, our gathering together, all of that, we can say, okay, yeah, well, well, I went and worshiped on Sunday. Well, if you're only worshiping on Sunday, that's a big problem. It's a lifelong thing. It's an everyday thing. It's an every moment thing. It's motivated by love and a desire to please God in everything. Everything. Every thought, every word, every action. Living above the, the petty things in life. Not controlled by the passions and pressures that control the lives of those around us. It's Really, if we want to sum it up, it's the right perspective, response, and attitude towards God. That's what godliness is. That is to worship well, to have that right perspective and attitude. And we are to supply to godliness now brotherly kindness. And that's the Greek word Philadelphia. The word meaning, again, brotherly love. And that, in essence, is the right perspective and attitude towards others. Godliness towards God, that right understanding and treating him as he should be treated and, and living for him as he should be. But here, brotherly kindness, treating each other as we should treat each other because of whose we are. Now, understanding that this type of, of love is difficult, there's no doubt. It's a fervent, practical, caring love for one another. It requires cultivation. It requires work. It requires diligence because it's difficult. Why? Well, quite frankly, because not everybody's as lovable as you are. So we have to make an effort to do it. We're called to bear one another's burdens. Paul tells us when we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ. We can't bear one another's burdens unless we get to know each other well enough, live alongside each other enough to know what those burdens are and then invest our lives into one another to carry those burdens along. In your brotherly kindness, in that type of love, Peter puts at the end of the list, agape, agape love. The unconditional, sacrificial love. 
the love that seeks the highest good for others, the love that places others' needs above our own, the unconditional, undeserved, and most oftentimes it's unreciprocated love. Is that how you love? Does your love for one another hold up to how Paul defines agape love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Let me read the list to you. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. How does your love hold up to that list? Your love for others. We're called to go through this and examine ourselves, I believe, in this list. But it's not to beat ourselves up. It's not to feel condemned here. But there should be, I believe, conviction in every heart this morning as we go through this list. But I also believe, again, that Peter is laying this out for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an encouragement. Not to feel discouraged. Not for every one of us to say, man, I think I fail in every one of those. That's not what his desire is in this. If it was, he wouldn't end it the way he does. Look at what he says now in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says here first, if these qualities are yours, didn't we say last week they were ours? Didn't we say he's already granted to us everything that, that is needed for life and godliness? Yes. What Peter is saying here is, do you now own your possessions? Have you made them yours? God's given them to you. Do you now own them? Have you taken ownership of what is yours? Now, in addition to that, he says, and they are increasing. Are, are they increasing? Are you, do you see growth in all of these areas in your life, or are you today in a spiritual rut? Also, <laughs> Can't, can't move past the fact that he says, if these qualities are yours, these, he doesn't say, if five out of seven are yours. All of them. Every aspect of this. We are called for this. And by the way, these build on one another. We don't wait until we get moral excellence down before we move on to knowledge. But they do build on one another. As I talked about with the perseverance and self-control, they build upon one another. And they are to be all increasing in us. And I believe the heart behind all of this, again, Peter is writing this at the end of his life, and I think that he was, is trying to say, guys, life is short and eternity is forever. So understand what is ours in this and get to work using it, because he's saying, if we do, we won't be useless and unfruitful. Who wants to be useless? Who wants for God to say, I can't use you? Who wants to be unfruitful or barren? But we flip this around and he says, if these things are yours and increasing, it will cause us to be useful and fruitful. Useful in the creator's hands. Fruitful for his good work. As Christians, that should be the desire of all of our hearts. And Peter is telling us, guys, here's the secret. Here's the formula. In the true knowledge 
of Jesus our Lord. The true knowledge. He emphasizes this over and over again through chapter 1 because when we get to chapter 2, he's going to start talking about false prophets, false knowledge, false teaching, all of that that's out there. And it's, a lot of it is subtle. And we need to be so grounded in the truth of God's word. Fruitfulness. I came across this this week. I, I love this. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, In a healthy, fruit-bearing church made up of healthy, fruit-bearing Christians... Try this garden plan. Plant four rows of squash. Squash gossip, squash criticism, squash indifference, squash petty jealousy. Plant seven rows of peas. Prayer, promptness, perseverance, politeness, preparedness, purity, and patience. Plant seven heads of lettuce. Let us be unselfish and loyal. Let us be faithful to duty. Let us search the scriptures. Let us not be weary in doing well. Let us be obedient in all things. Let us be truthful and let us love one another. And no garden would be complete without turnips. Turn up for church. Turn up for prayer meetings. Turn up for Bible study. Turn up with a smile even when things are difficult. Turn up with determination to do your best in God's service. That's quite a garden. One we all should be cultivating. Fruitfulness. He says in verse 9, and this is important, he who lacks these qualities, if these are not increasing, he says they're blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. When we lose sight of this, when we don't take ownership of what is ours, when we're not cultivating this so that they're growing, and we're growing in all of these aspects, our vision is affected. Our vision of eternity is affected. We get wrapped up and caught up in everything that's going on around us right here, right now. Our vision and understanding of God's promises is affected. We start losing sight of what is truly ours and what he's promised us. Even to the point of we forget or, or our vision is, is blinded towards our past forgiveness and the victory and power we have over sin in our lives. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Man, what a promise. What a promise. And again, this isn't to secure our salvation or to guarantee our place in heaven. It's because we have it. And it's an urgent plea on Peter's part to live out our calling, to demonstrate the reality of our salvation. We all have a part to play in this divine, eternal production that God has laid out. And so with 2014 right on the horizon, I don't know how it could come at a better time to go through a list like this and examine ourselves. Have the Holy Spirit examine us. Be open and honest and, and open before him so that he can point these things out to us. And I ask, what, what area or areas are you struggling in in this list? Is it, is it not knowing who you are in Christ? Understanding his calling on you? What he desires of you because of the relationship, because of what he has done for you? Is it maybe a lack of knowledge? You just, you just don't know of him. You don't know much of him because you don't spend time searching his word to, to grow in that knowledge. Maybe it's an area of self-control. There are some things that you are allowing to control you instead of you having control over them. 
Maybe it's in the area of perseverance that you have, you've stumbled away from this because you've, you've failed and you, you believe that you're condemned in this. Godliness. You understand all of this, but when you go out into the world, when you go to work on Mondays, you leave all of this in the car or at home. Or maybe it's in the area of love, how, how you're loving one another. We go before the Lord with these things and say, Lord, show them to me. Reveal this to me because the promise is amazing. The promise is incredible. Look at it again. It says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. I understand what he's meaning by practice. He's not talking about practicing like how I practice putting. <laughs> the reason I'm a horrible putter is because the, re- the way I practice is I throw three balls down, I hit them each once, and that's done. That's it. <laughs> no, practice, practice is a lifelong thing, what Peter is talking about. It's written, the term is written in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing thing. It's never, uh, yep, done that, got that taken care of. Lifelong habits. And he says, practice these things. Practice these things. We don't get to pick the list. We don't get to pick what we leave out of the list. We don't get to add new things to the list. We all have our favorite recipes, I'm sure, those that have been handed on down through generations. You can't take great-grandma's awesome cake recipe, change it all up, and then when it doesn't turn out right, blame her. The same is true with our lives, our spiritual growth, the way that we walk. He's laid it all out for us here. He's told us that we've been given the divine power, we've been given the magnificent promises to begin this work in, and then he's laid out all of the ingredients, and we follow the plan, and the recipe is perfect. The promise is there. Verse 11, as he draws this section to a close, he says, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I don't know if it was intentional, but Peter uses the same word here, supplied. Epikorageo, remember we talked about that earlier? how we are to lavishly supply these things, how we are to diligently be pouring our whole lives into this. And then he says at the end here that our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I don't, I see a correlation there that the effort and 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 diligence that we pour into this is going to be paid back amazingly when we get to heaven, when we stand before our Lord and Savior. Now, he's not saying that our salvation is depending on this. He's talking about the reception that we receive and the rewards that we get. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So I will end with the question I began with. What are you working hardest at? What do you apply all diligence to? Is it investing? Is it your job? Is it accumulating wealth? Is it education? Is it your health? You can apply all diligence to those things and have absolutely no guarantee of a payout. 
You can do the best research possible in, in investing your money and still lose it. You can spend decades studying and getting all sorts of letters after your name, and it's no guarantee of success. You can work diligently at working out and, and getting your body into shape and eating right, and you have no guarantee that you won't die of some disease this year. But if you apply all diligence to your spiritual growth, if you pour everything you have into knowing God and to growing in your faith, there is a guarantee, and there's no fast-talking announcer at the end giving a disclaimer. There's no fine print at the bottom. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.8, for bodily discipline is only of a little profit. It's not that it's worthless. He's not saying don't work out, and that's not what I'm saying. What he's saying is it's of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Guys, it holds a promise. It's profitable for all things. You won't regret a moment that you spend on these seven qualities diligently seeking after that. How do I know that? Because our God can't lie, and he promises it. Father, we, we are amazed by you and your promises. Lord, as we reflect on this section. Lord, it's powerful. It's life-changing, Lord. And I pray that as we stand on the precipice of a new year, 2013 behind us, 2014 ahead of us, Lord, we can look back and we can see where we have fallen short in these areas. And Lord, the enemy would love to take that and rub it in our face. Lord, we can't change yesterday. But praise you, Jesus, you fixed that problem on the cross. But your word tells us, as we've studied here today, that we can apply all diligence today and tomorrow and going forward to this amazing recipe that you have laid out for us. Lord, our desire is to just relinquish all control to you. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That we would rest in your finished work, that we would rely on the power of your Holy Spirit within us so that in that, Lord, we would reflect your glory, radiate your righteousness. Lord, as we stand in this precious gift of faith that you have given to us, Lord, draw us into a diligent desire to advance in moral excellence. And Lord, that we wouldn't be satisfied there, but that we would press on to increase our knowledge of you and what you would have for us, your will for us. That we would enlarge our capacities of self-control. That we would cultivate patience and perseverance and endurance. Lord, that we would strive for godliness in every aspect of our lives. And Lord, that love would define us. Your love, perfect love. Your word tells us that when we love like that, the world, knows we're, the world will know we're yours. Lord, 
I pray that each one of us would be drawn by your spirit this week to lay our lives open before you. Help us identify our weaknesses. Lord, work in us to desire the life that you have for us so that we would walk in a manner worthy. And Lord, our goal, all of us, is to hear those words, well done, well done. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, would you all please stand if you know